Hello, people. Let's pray again. Uh, Lord Jesus, what amazing words to hear from your lips that you are alive, the Lord of all lords, and that you are with us, your people. We thank you for this word uh, that is a word that ultimately points to you. We thank you that it has been written and preserved and handed down to us and for the gift of your spirit that we might receive it as you intend. And so we ask, please, for that work of your spirit that we might not have hard hearts but soft ones that are ready to hear, to heed, to obey and to know the joy that comes in knowing you. Please do this work among us. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to think about miracles. What is most spectacular about our world? After all, we are looking at the book of Jonah, which is quite a well-known story, even for people who aren't that familiar with the Bible. The story of a man who was swallowed by a big whale and yet lived to tell the tale. A great miracle. Now, what kind of writing, though, are we dealing with here? Now, is it just some ancient fable? You know, the kind of thing that gives rise to veggie tales. Who, who has watched Jonah, veggie tales? Yeah, where you've got asparagus running around as prophets and it's good fun. You know? But if that's all it is, most people will probably go, yeah, okay. It's just a fun kind of religious fable. But it's when we start to insist that this really happened in a moment in history that for many, that, well, that starts to smell a little fishy, right? Are you serious? Ah, dad joke. It, more than fishy though, a bit, a bit ridiculous, even offensive. Yeah? What, what kind of gullible, unenlightened, unscientific fool would believe that this stuff really happened? Do you feel that mood around and over your Christian faith? How quick were you to go into the office on Monday and tell people what you looked at in the Bible the day before? Here's the thing though, so much of what we make of events is coloured by what we bring to them. The presuppositions and assumptions. I'll tell you what I mean, many people are sceptical of the miracles that the Bible records because they violate the laws of nature. So we read in the Gospels that Jesus walked on the water. But of course, that can't have happened, so it is thought, because that would violate the law of gravity. Let me illustrate. With an apple, of course, because Newton's sitting under the apple tree, yeah, ascribed to coming up with the law of gravitation, which says, when I drop this apple, I can expect that it'll hit the floor. And so predictable are the conditions of our world that when I drop it again, I can expect the same thing over and over again. My kids are not going to eat this one. It's getting very soft. I'm going to keep dropping this apple. I'm going to keep expecting it to hit the floor unless I catch it. Unless I intervene. The law of gravity doesn't prevent someone from intervening and changing the outcome for the apple. It predicts what will happen when there's no change in the conditions this is the critical point. There's a difference between saying, 
This is what we normally experience. Drop the apple, hit the floor. And saying, this is what we must experience and there can be no exceptions. This gets to the heart of the nature of our world, of our reality. What kind of world do we live in? People who deny the very possibility of miracles bring the assumption that the world is a closed system. That there is nothing outside of it. That every event has a cause and effect relationship that must be explained by natural mechanisms. It's called naturalism. And so when you embrace naturalism as your starting point, you can't actually even come at the Bible because it's simply not possible what it explains because the world is a closed system. It's not possible for anything outside to intervene. Everything has to fit into your grid. If miracles were true, then they actually threaten the very foundation of how someone views reality actually becomes a very dangerous idea, the possibility and reality of miracles. I think this is a a helpful thing. A a clever man named Peter Hitchens, brother, by the way, of the more famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, he was asked what he thought the most dangerous idea is, and he said, the most dangerous idea in human history remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. That is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. Why? Well, because if the miracle of the resurrection is true, this is not a closed system. There is a God, an unseen God, a creator God, one who sustains all things, the one who made your life and the one that you owe your existence to the one that you will come before as judge, becomes a very dangerous idea. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus compares himself with Jonah. If you want to work out how to read Jonah, look at Jesus. And he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and delivered, so I, Jesus, will go into the heart of the earth dead, decomposing to be raised to life, bodily, physically, publicly, never to die again. Which is why C.S. Lewis is so spot on when he says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. We can all go home. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's all or nothing. Is the world closed or is there a God? And who is he? And how would you know him? And how would you relate to him? That is what Christianity is about. The book of Jonah intends to leave us in no doubt as to the nature of our world. There is an unseen God who upholds what we would call natural laws and at times spectacularly intervenes so that something that wouldn't otherwise happen, happens. We saw that last week with Jonah being swallowed by a big fish to survive. Great miracle, yes, but this morning we're going to look at an even greater miracle. And one that God continues to work in our very day. A miracle that you can know in your life. 
We're going to come to that in a moment, but just to catch us up in case you missed last week and to ground this writing, this is of the prophet Jonah of Israel in the 8th century BC, so some 750 years before Jesus. And the focus of the book is actually strangely for the Old Testament, which which typically focuses on the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. It actually focuses on the city of Nineveh, which was kind of the the major capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire were a great thorn in the side of Israel, a constant threat. Assyria just wanted world domination. They were known for their violence, for being ruthless. Here's an inscription that has been found in archaeology depicting how they would treat people that they would conquer, dismembering them, impaling them. This is a ruthless, violent people. And yet, in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is repeatedly described as a great city, something that historians have come to see and agree to. It's believed that Nineveh was one of the most prosperous cities on earth, in fact, the most prosperous city on earth at a point in time. Its size, archaeology has since dug up the remains. Again, this is real places, real time, modern-day Iraq. Is one of the gates, the walls that has been restored. But Nineveh is more famous in the Bible as a wicked city, repeatedly called a wicked city in the book of Jonah. So that chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Except... Jonah is the prodigal prophet. He runs in the opposite direction to Nineveh. He runs as hard and as fast as he can, and we'll think about why next week. But as you remember from last week, he recognises, as he's on a ship, he recognises the miraculous intervention of God. There's a great storm. Now, that's not unusual, but such a great storm where he recognises he's the problem, he's the cause. And to be thrown overboard... The storm will calm down as it does. Jonah should have died as he's tossed into the Mediterranean. God sends a huge fish, swallows him up. Jonah should have died. And yet three days later, he's spat up onto dry land. A great miracle. An impossibility if our world is a closed system. How can you be so sure that it is? But then, chapter 3, which is what we'll look at today, we come to an even greater miracle. Verse 2, it's a bit of a repeat. God says to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, just quickly in passing here, this is to be a great encouragement to us. This is who our God is, a God of second chances. How easily and rightly could he have said, Jonah, you are done with. Spectacular fail. I'm going to get someone else who's going to do it right. But God is gracious. Jonah, go again. Though you might have failed the Lord and failed him spectacularly, there is hope that you can still serve him that he might still use you. So Jonah goes and verse 4 proclaims this message. 
40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The end. Shortest sermon in the Bible, right? Easy one to remember, no notes needed. It's actually just five words in the original language Hebrew. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And here is the greatest miracle in the book. We just skim over it and miss it. Catch it. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The wicked, violent, evil, idolatrous, God-hating, Jewish Israel-hating people hear of the God of Israel and believe him and repent. They turn. Verse 8, this happens even to the king. He exchanges his glorious robes for sackcloth and he issues a decree, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, last week, a dog featured quite heavily in a story about a whale, didn't it? (laughs) I don't know about your home, but the dog was quite a topic of my family conversation as well. Interestingly, it was the, uh, it was the eight-year-old girl who came home with an 11-point summary of the sermon. It was fantastic. It was true. It was spot on. And all the boys, the older boys, could talk about is William pooed on the pillow. It's <laughs> all that. Um, I, I, I think they had a little bit more for Graham's sake, but there you go. W- William, dogs. Here are animals dressed in sackcloth. What's going on there? Well, it's It's a symbol, it's a sign of just how earnest these people are in their repentance. How how overarching, how serious, how sombre they take this message. We have here a a picture of three things. Two of them are inseparable and the third one goes along with it. Faith, repentance and humility. Faith, uh, think of faith as trust. Believing, trusting. You see that there in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. That's interesting. It was Jonah who spoke a word. They were so convinced that this was a word from God. They didn't just believe things about God. They believed Him. They trusted Him. And put on sackcloth. It's a picture of, of turning from their sin to God in humility Not just in the sackcloth, but notice what the king says there, verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion. He does not presume upon God. He doesn't demand or expect anything of him. This is so at odds with the spirit of our age, isn't it? That if our generation is to admit the existence of God, then... Why doesn't he do what we want him to do? Why doesn't he love and embrace and accept the things that we hold dear? We presume upon God, but not this royal king of the most dominant empire. 
This is staggering. This is a great miracle. As he humbles himself, no claim on God or his mercy. Who knows, he asks. Well, verse 10, we get the answer. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now there's the account, there's the chapter. We'll come to finish the book in chapter 4 next week and consider more of this. But I want to spend the rest of our time now drilling into what is the big thing in this chapter. What's that? It's the miraculous and merciful work of God to save. The miraculous and merciful. Let's start with mercy. See, Jonah rocks up with a a word of judgment and we can go, oh, judgment, does God have to judge? What? And we'll consider this more next week. But just remember the floods this year in our own country, devastating and for many communities particularly so because they didn't have warning, just came upon them. How merciful for God to actually bring warning of judgment. Of destruction. And there's actually a, a wonderful ambiguity in this warning, which is lost on us in our English translations, but there in the original language of the Hebrew, that word there, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That overthrown word could mean destroyed, which is how we take it, how the Ninevites seem to have taken it, but it can also mean turned around. The very same word is used in Deuteronomy 23 verse 5 where God turns around Balaam's curse and turns it, overthrows it, into blessing. That's exactly what God does here through the mercy of warning of being overthrown. God turns around. How does he do that? By intervening. By sending a message of judgment. Not you are good, you are beautiful, go for it, I've got your back. Judgment, destruction, a great mercy of God. And not only does he show his mercy in sending that warning, that warning is useless for people who won't listen to it. And so God miraculously intervenes. He so works it in the people that as they hear the warning, they would heed it. They would take action on it. Now, let's be very clear. Whenever a call of repentance is put out in the Bible, God says, repent, turn back. There is always the expectation that we are responsible for what we do with that. We have a decision to make. Friends, you have a decision to make this morning as you hear the same call of God to repent. We are responsible as moral people. God honours us in that way and will hold us to account. And yet, it is only by the merciful and miraculous intervention of God that anyone will heed the warning and turn back. So dead and hardened is the human heart that we will never seek God on our own. The natural thing. For the human heart is to hit the floor. 
It is God who grants repentance. If you're taking notes and you want to chase this up later, Acts chapter 5, verse 31. An example of God gifting repentance to Israel. Not them working it out, but him giving it. Then a few chapters later, Acts chapter 11, verse 18, God grants repentance to the Gentiles. Most of us, I take it, non-Jews. When you hear God's call to repent, you must make a decision. But as you do heed it, and as you do turn, know that God's grace has gone before you. That you would, that I would, we would not do that on our own. And so we see that as God grants repentance to a single generation in the one city of Nineveh, in one moment, we actually find an anticipation of what God will do through every generation at the coming of Christ. This is the merciful and miraculous work of God. The Bible has a number of unlikely converts. Those that turn back to God where you're like, wow, wouldn't have picked that. Nineveh. They're given to us an example. What? To show that this is not something that the people of their own come up with. They don't make themselves good enough to come back to God, but God miraculously intervenes. You have the thief on the cross who likely wasn't executed for stealing a loaf of bread. This would have been a hardcore dude turns at the 11th hour to Jesus. The Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, a hardcore prison guy to keep the hardcore prisoners in, bends his knee before God, which is a biblical example that's so precious to my family, who uh, my father-in-law who died 18 months ago now, he worked in maximum, maximum um, security prisons. Hardcore place. He was a hard man. You've got to be. He was hard though towards God. And at the 11th hour, got on his knee before God and repented. Who would have thought? The Bible, history, is full of the most unlikely converts. But I want to point out the most unlikely convert in the room this morning. And don't stress if you know you've had a hectic story and here you are, you're wondering, who is this person? Though I could do that, and I've looked out this morning, it's just such a wonder to see some of you here. But among the most unlikely converts, you, me, every single one of us, who follows Jesus. Some of you know that. Like I said, you've got stories where your rebellion against God was just spectacular. You would have been right at home in Nineveh. You know that. And so that you are sitting here this morning, you're like, wow. And those of us who know your story, we're like, wow. But others of us, miss just how unlikely it is that we too sit here as followers of Jesus this morning. Possibly because we've been following him for so long, possibly because we grew up in a stable home, 
maybe with the, the gift of a Christian community at church or at school and all good gifts of God. But none of it, anything that forces God's hand in your life. Do you believe that if God allowed you to follow your heart, you would have followed it right into hell? Do you believe that? You need to. It's the teaching of the Bible that not one of us seeks God. If you are here checking the things of Jesus out and you think Christianity is just a bunch of good moral people who look down their noses at others, here this morning, we're a bunch of rebels. Maybe we've dressed it up in respectable middle-class ways. Not one of us can presume on the mercy of God. But in every single one of our lives, God has intervened. He has turned us back to himself. But notice how he does this, how he did it in Nineveh, how he's done it ever since. How did the Ninevites come to repentance? Through a word. Through five Hebrew words. They are not converted because Jonah moved to Nineveh to set up a soup kitchen or to dig wells or to open his home and be a really nice guy. All of those things good and important and flow from a repentant life. But not one of those things of themselves can bring conversion, can bring repentance. Nor are the Ninevites converted by Jonah's amazing story of God's miraculous work in his life through a fish. Now, I suspect that as he moves around the city, he probably has told the story of the fish. Maybe he smelt like it. (laughs) But the point that the text wants to make is that it is a word from God about coming judgment that brings them to repentance. Not any special, miraculous story in Jonah's life. If you think, gee, if only God would show up and do more miraculous things in people's lives, then they would believe him. You need to read the Gospels. Jesus raised Lazarus to life. And the people who witnessed this, a dead man coming back to life, wanted to kill Jesus all the more. As Jesus was being dragged off to be executed, someone's ear was cut off. He picked it up and healed it. And yet they continued to drag him off. Sure, Jonah had an amazing miracle story. But the big point that the text is making, that the Bible makes, that it is a word of God that brings about repentance, that brought this king to say, who knows, maybe God will have mercy. And so friends, how much higher is the ground that we stand on compared to Jonah and this king? How much fuller is the word that we have, the word of the gospel? The word of Jesus, God's eternal son, who came for us, who lived as one of us and yet unlike us, only ever honoured God as we are intended to. He did it perfectly. And yet he would go willingly in love to his death on a cross and have the entire list 
of our lives, all of our rebellion, all of our wickedness counted as his. And the just punishment that God, a righteous God, must pour out, poured out on him. And he was overthrown. He was destroyed. Jesus, as it were, suffered hell in our place. Why? Because God delights to show mercy. And so in love and willingly, Jesus takes the punishment upon himself so that it can be fully paid and satisfied. So that anyone who would now turn back to him can repent, can actually come back to God through the way of full forgiveness. Let me speak to two groups in the room this morning. Firstly, to those of you who have not repented, who have not turned back to God. We love that you are here. Hear that. I look out, and as I look around the room, I see a bunch of people who, are, who keep coming back, whose lives have been turned upside down for the amazing best, who were in your shoes not long ago. But let me ask you, why have you not repented? Why not? Is it because you believe the world is a closed system? That there is nothing outside of it? How can you be so sure? You do know that science cannot prove that. It's not set up to do that. Are you willing to stake your eternity on a hunch that everything must have a natural explanation? Would you be willing, hear me out, would you be willing to park your scepticism for a moment? Don't take a blind leap of faith, that's not what following Jesus is about. But would you be willing to just park your scepticism for a moment? That you might be able to come to the Bible, to its evidences, open-mindedly to follow the evidence where it goes because both in this room and right across the world God has used that willingness to bring about the miracle of repentance to follow the evidence where it leads to the truth but maybe you're here and you haven't repented because you think of yourself as unworthy for God you've thought that this church thing, this Bible thing, this Christian thing is for good people and you know yourself and your life and you know the mess that you've made of it and the thought of coming into the presence of of God just terrifies you. There's something good and right and proper about that. But all of us are unworthy and it is your unworthiness that qualifies you for God's mercy. Do not Leave this morning thinking, I can't come to God because I'm not good. That's why he sent his son, because he delights to show mercy. But maybe you haven't repented because you're just unworried. You just hear this stuff and shrug it off, laugh it off. What's the big deal between me and God? You know, you're working hard to to live a good life, to be a good person. Or maybe you think at least, well, I'll I'll put all this stuff off to down the track. I'll just get on with enjoying my life for now. Well, if that is you, hear the warning of Jonah. Is it 40 days? Is it four years? Is it 40 years? 
But if you continue down that path, you will be overthrown. We work hard to convince ourselves that we're good at heart, but there will become a, there'll come a day when we stand before God and our hearts are laid bare. And there'll be no kidding God. There'll be no kidding ourselves. That we have committed high treason. We have thrown off the king of the universe. And you won't be able to on that day say to God, well, why didn't you send a big flashy miracle into my life so that I would know that you are there, so that I would take you seriously? To which he'll say, I sent you a word of warning. Repeatedly, possibly. And not just a word of warning, but a word of escape. A word of life. But you refused. Don't, don't go there. God himself says he, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that rather he desires that everyone would repent. Do that today. Throw yourself on the mercy of God, his son Jesus, who has come as your saviour. Let me finish, though, by speaking to the other group, those of us who have repented, who do believe. Three quickish things. Firstly, gratitude. Why are you saved? Why are you a child of God with every spiritual blessing? Not because you are worthy. Not because of your pedigree. Not because you are any better than anyone else, but because of God's mercy. He was delighted to intervene in your life and has worked the most profound miracle you will ever know. Are you looking and longing for miracles in your life? Good. Pray to the God who is the God of the miraculous. But, but don't miss the greatest miracle that he has worked, which is why the New Testament followers of Jesus, a mark of us continually is said to be, gratitude I was one like the Ninevites and yet God sent a a word to me but more than that he worked in my heart that I would actually heed it and that I would turn that I would stay turned did you sing those three songs earlier with gratitude in your hearts I, I know there's a whole bunch of hard stuff going on in our lives but the Bible calls us, as we, as we sing, to sing with gratitude. We'll have an opportunity in a moment to do that. For all that is going on in your life, is your life marked by gratitude that God has stepped in and intervened? Secondly, take care. The Christian life takes care to keep repenting. There is that turning back to God, the kind of getting married moment, if you like. But then in every healthy marriage, there is a a daily commitment to that marriage and a daily turning to it and giving myself to... It's the same with coming to God. We read of the most amazing revival in history here in Nineveh, where God touched in an amazing way one generation in a moment. History would show, though, that it didn't endure. 
to the following generations. In the year 612, the city was overthrown as a judgment of, of God. And so it's a reminder for us to take care to not presume upon God. As though we just do the, the wedding day thing and then whatever. Uh, but to, to keep turning back to God as my Lord. To keep having him reign in my life. To keep seeking his forgiveness where I have not done that. It's possible that some of you did the marriage thing a long time ago but, but have drifted. Today, do not harden your hearts but repent. Some of you might be carrying around secret sin, serious sin, double life kind of stuff. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, repent. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. There is mercy, but we must take care. And for the next generation, I mean, what a thought that there's... There's a flash in the pan in Nineveh, but doesn't endure. It reminds us that every single generation needs the miraculous work of God. That we are to not presume upon God for our kids for the next generation. So we plead with him for them. And we give ourselves to doing all we can to see them raised in repentance and faith. Third and final thing, I want to underline what this should do for us. It should give us confidence what hope do you have that those in your home in your family in your friendship circles in your workplace in this community and country what hope do we have that they will repent it's not a flashy miracle it's not you being nice they don't be a jerk it's not even you sharing miraculous stories in your life what is our hope? What is our confidence? A word, the word of the gospel, which is a word of judgment. You are not okay. And a word of mercy. Flee to Jesus. Be reminded of the confidence to have in the gospel. You don't make the gospel powerful. The gospel is powerful. God can use you. You, I, don't make the gospel powerful. It is powerful. God can use you. As you speak it to those around you, yeah, you bumble and you stumble and you don't have all the answers. Jonah had five words. Speak it. As, as you invite people to come and hear about it, as we are part of a, a missioning work together, as you talk to people with the summer series survey, the goal is not just to collect data. The goal is to speak to our community, to try and bring up opportunities to share the gospel, invite people to come and hear it. And keep giving yourself to the missioning work that is happening here. How good was that update? God did a, an amazing thing saving 120,000 people at Nineveh. But think about what he has done and what he might do among, what was it, 115 churches planted? Churches here, churches across the country. As more and more people come to repentance and faith and, and take that word out, think about how many hundreds of thousands, millions of people God may bring to repentance and faith as he has done for us. He did it with you. 
He did it with the Ninevites. He did it through Jonah. He can do it through us. What bigger, what better, what more important thing would you give your life to? Have confidence in the word of the gospel. I'm going to pause there. And I actually want to give you an opportunity to reflect. Our lives are so busy and noisy. Have you come to the point today where you recognise your need to turn back to God? To ask for his mercy? To put your faith in his son, Jesus? Do that. Have you been convicted, having done that in the past, that that you really need to repent of some serious things, that you've drifted, mate. Take a moment with God to do that. Then I'll lead us in a time of talking to God in a moment. Let's do that together. Father God, we remember the words of Jesus who said, there is a party in heaven over every one sinner who turns back. So precious is each person to you. For those who might have done that this morning, we rejoice along with heaven. As we reflect this morning on what you've been doing just this year, adults, teenagers, kids, what you're doing around the country, we rejoice along with heaven. That in spite of the messages we hear around the place, that you are on the throne. That you delight to show mercy. And that every day, in every country, you are working this profound miracle of repentance. We rejoice along with heaven and we humbly ask of you to do more and more of it please might there be a great outpouring of your spirit in families in schools, in workplaces across this country and use us Father, where our gratitude has grown tired and weary, refill us, remind us, fill us with thanksgiving. Where our obedience is just way off, convict us and call us back. We're mindful that for anything good and eternal to happen, you must go before us, so we plead with you to do that. And we long to be in heaven and reflect on just how wonderfully You worked in us and through us, down through the ages. And so we ask, please, for each one of us that you might reign in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did take the opportunity this morning to repent, then can I 
ask you to do this. Tell someone, just, just one person, just tell someone. Let that be a, a, an external expression of, of that internal thing that has happened. Let them rejoice with you. Would you stand? Would you lift your voices? Let's sing of Jesus, ask him to reign in our lives.